Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are ya? Well, I've got a story to tell. Once upon a time, two companies, alike in dignity, Apple and Microsoft, were locked in a battle for the home computer market. Apple had started off with a few computer models named after the company itself, you know, the Apple and the Apple II and then Apple IIe and so on and so forth. Microsoft went a different route. Microsoft gained rights to various pieces of software. It developed some, but it essentially bought or from a certain point of view, uh, maybe not stole, but definitely hoodwinked (laughs) some developers and ended up licensing out operating system software and things like that. So two very different approaches. So by the mid 1980s, the struggle between Apple and Microsoft had intensified. Apple introduced the Macintosh computer with a graphical user interface or GUI, GUI, in other words. Microsoft introduced Windows, its own GUI operating system. 
And while Microsoft wasn't making the hardware, the term Windows PC became shorthand. It was almost as if Microsoft had been making the PCs itself. It wasn't. It was just making the operating system on top of the PC. But then the operating system was in many ways more important than whomever made the machine itself, because the operating system would determine what kind of software you could run on the machine, after all. Now, during the 80s and through the 90s, Apple was on the ropes for a lot of different reasons, which I've covered in other episodes of Tech Stuff. At one point, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs left the company, with some versions of the story saying he was essentially fired. Other versions say he was just strongly encouraged to leave. Apple hit some really, really rough waters, and at one point, it was in danger of going out of business. Then, Apple actually brought Steve Jobs back, kind of to act as a, a type of advisor, but it wasn't too long before Jobs regained control of the company he had co-founded. That's also a very dramatic story. After that, Apple made a series of moves that would really turn things around for the company and set it on its path to become a trillion-dollar company. Now, the interesting thing is, while Windows would retain a dominant hold on the business and home computer operating system markets, Apple would find new ways to become the company associated with entire technologies. And Apple wasn't inventing these technologies. Instead, the company was designing appealing products and then marketing the heck out of them. And one product that really helped turn Apple around was the iPod, Apple's digital music player. So a standalone device on which you would store and play music. Now, again, Apple did not invent the MP3 player. It was not the first company to make one. They just made one that looked really nice. It worked well. It had some really cool features. And it, and it, it really benefited from the power of Steve Jobs' presentation at various marketing events. And Apple was able to forge some alliance with various music labels over the next couple of years. And that helped create new opportunities, including the launch of the iTunes store in 2003. So iTunes had been around before that, but iTunes first started out as software you would have on your computer and you would use iTunes to organize your music library. But you couldn't actually buy music from iTunes at first. Instead, you would buy a CD, a compact disc, put that in the optical drive of your Mac computer, and you would rip music from the CD and store it digitally within iTunes. That would be your, your organization software, essentially. And that's how you would transfer music over to your iPod, too. You would physically connect your iPod to your Mac, and then you would port music over from your library on your Mac computer to your iPod. Now, with two years of negotiation, Steve Jobs was actually able to convince music labels to offer up digital tracks for individual purchase within iTunes itself. And that was the creation of the iTunes store, where instead of using it as just your means of organizing your music, it also became the way you could purchase new music. That would really push Apple to new heights. Microsoft was way behind on the MP3 player space. They did not jump into that market uh, early on, and Apple was able to essentially define that market. Microsoft eventually recognized that there was money to be made in the digital media player space. And 
the iPod had been out for several years, like five years. And then Microsoft decided they were going to try and create their own digital music player. Maybe this one could have some really innovative features that would set it apart. Designers could actually take the opportunity to learn about what worked with the iPod and what didn't work or what people wish the iPod could do. They could take that information and use that to design a superior digital media player. They could have done that. They didn't succeed in doing that. They, they tried in some ways, but really it was a massive failure. And it's a shame because Apple's incredible success put aside, there were people who had notes, not musical notes, but like critical notes for the iPod. For example, for folks like myself, I did not own a Mac computer. Now, initially, if you wanted an iPod, it would only work with Mac computers. You had to have a Macintosh in order to uh, synchronize with an iPod. It did not work with Windows-based machines. Later generations of the iPod and later generations of iTunes would change that. But initially, you just couldn't do it. And if you did want to use a Windows-based machine with an iPod that was compatible, you had to download iTunes. You had to install iTunes onto your Windows machine. And the Windows version of iTunes stunk, or at least in my opinion, it stunk. Uh, iTunes could do some stuff that was legitimately useful. You know, it could detect when new tracks were added to your library and then transfer just those new tracks to your iPod when you next connected your iPod to your computer. But at least on PCs, iTunes was very slow. It was clunky. It took up a ton of space on your, your computer, and it required a lot of, uh, of your computer's assets to run. So everything else slowed to a crawl. It seemed like it was working great on Mac computers whenever I saw people inter interface with it. But my own experience was totally different. I hated iTunes on Windows. I thought of it as bloatware or worse. And you couldn't interface with the iPod using any other kind of of digital media, you know, organizational software. It had to be iTunes. So this meant that Microsoft actually had an opportunity to perhaps design a player and a software package that would work more smoothly for people who are Windows owners rather than Mac owners. That was a real opportunity for them. But even with a really good product, Microsoft still would have faced a truly tough challenge. Apple had really defined the MP3 player landscape for five years at that point. They had introduced uh, a an iPod capable of showing video. Uh, it had uh, uh, really great reviews. They had you know models that could hold up to like 80 gigs of material. It could be a uh, a storage uh, product, so you could actually store files on your iPod, not just media files, but other types as well. There are a lot of reasons why the iPod was seen as a great product. I mean, heck, the iPod is why we call podcasts podcasts. Like we call it podcasts because Apple created this product that defined an entire generation of technology. So that brand was really entrenched in the minds of consumers. So even with a spectacular product, Microsoft was going to face an uphill battle. But it, did, it wasn't a spectacular product, so the battle was even harder. The very first Microsoft Zune was originally just called the Zune, but later on, Microsoft called it the Zune 30. 
And the 30 in this case references the amount of storage available on the device. It had a 30 gigabyte hard drive. A company called Freescale made the processor that ran in the Zune 30. It also made the processor for another digital player called the Toshiba Gigabit S. In fact, the Zune resembled the Toshiba Gigabit S in many, many ways. Like, it, it almost was as if the Zune was essentially a Gigabit S from Toshiba that had gone through a little bit of a redesign that changed the dimensions of the player and maybe some, uh, some aesthetics, but otherwise it looked like it was very similar to the Gigabit S. And that's because that's what it happened. Microsoft didn't really build the Zune, Toshiba did. Microsoft made some changes to the design, but they were mostly cosmetic in nature. So Freescale used to be a division within Motorola until 2004, when Motorola divested the division and it became Freescale. In 2015, Freescale would become absorbed into a company called NXP Semiconductors. So the Zune came out in a brief span of time where Freescale was its own company. And unfortunately, someone made a boo-boo with the drivers for the Freescale processors that went into both the Zune 30 and the Gigabit S. It was a boo-boo that wouldn't become noticeable for a couple of years, which is foreshadowing. We'll talk about it when we get there. Okay, before we go any further, let's take a quick break. Working remotely? Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. 
Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Okay, we're back. So when the Zune 30 launched, initially you could get it in one of three colors. There was like a pearl white, there was black, and there was brown. I, uh, I, I have no idea what made Microsoft think that brown would be a sought after color or an MP3 player. I don't know how they didn't anticipate that this was going to create a whole bunch of jokes about the nature of that MP3 player. It's like they were setting themselves up to be hazed. Surely someone at Microsoft at some point said, guys, this might not be a good idea. And yet they went with it. So the original Zune had a three inch screen and a four by three aspect ratio. So taller than it was wide. Uh, this was a much larger screen than what you could find on the iPod at the time. That was really impressive, right? Like it was a bigger device than the iPod. It was definitely thicker too. Like it was a chunky boy, as they might say. And it was going to be a hefty piece of, of plastic <laughs> that you were going to hold in your pocket if you're going to you know, walk around with one of these things, but the screen was very large, which was impressive. Uh, the UI was pretty nice too, at least on a surface level. Uh, it did turn out that the resolution of that larger screen was actually the exact same resolution as the smaller iPod screen, which means that images shown on the iPod would appear, uh, sharper than those that you would see on the zoom because you had the exact same resolution but the Zune had a larger screen. So same resolution, but an enlarged screen means that the images on that screen are blurrier. It could play video, but it was kind of immaterial because you couldn't just use video from any source and the Zune marketplace didn't have video on it. So <laughs> you couldn't purchase video to play on it. It could technically support it, but there wasn't really any way to get video onto it, at least initially. It ran a custom version of Microsoft's portable media center software, uh, the user interface, the actual controls, well, it had a, a circular D pad. Like it didn't look like a D pad. It looked like a, a click wheel. Like if you think of the old iPods, they had a mechanical wheel where you would put your thumb on this wheel and you would spin the wheel in order to navigate through the menus. That's what this thing looked like. It had, it looked like a very similar control mechanism, but no, it was just a D pad in the form of a circle. And then in the center of the circle was a button that you could use to select stuff. So like a D pad on a game controller, you would push up, down, left, or right to navigate through menus and then use that center button to make a selection. So, uh, kind of a bummer cause it looked like the control was meant to, to be more tactile and touch based. And it's not, it was a, just a D pad. 
The Zune did have a couple of neat features, however. It had Wi-Fi capability. The Zune 30 had Wi-Fi. Sort of. So you could use the Zune's Wi-Fi to connect with another Zune that was in the same, you know, local space that you were in, like the same room or whatever. And then the two Zune owners could share songs and even photos between the two different Zune devices. So if you had a photo on your device, which by the way, there's no camera on the Zune. So you had to have loaded this photo on from your computer, or maybe you have a a music track you really liked and you wanted to share it with your buddy who also happens to have a Zune. You could use this method and send that music file over to your buddy. But uh, if you wanted to purchase a song and put it on your Zune, you couldn't do it wirelessly. You still had to do the old tethered connection. You'd purchase the song through the Zune marketplace on your computer. You would tether your Zune to the computer and then transfer the music that way. Now, let's say you did somehow find the other person in your town who also owned a Zune and the two of you decided that you wanted to exchange a a song. You could do that if you were close enough to them. You could send them a track, but they would have just uh, three days to access that track and they can play it a maximum of three times and then it would just delete itself off their device. So after three days or after three plays, that song would disappear. They called this feature, and I can't believe it to this day that they did this. This is like the brown Zune decision. They called this feature squirting. So you would squirt a music track to another Zune user. And I know it sounds like I'm making a joke. I am not. An actual company created a brown MP3 player that could squirt music at other MP3 players. And yes, everybody made fun of this for ages. You couldn't listen to a tech podcast. You couldn't read an article without some commentary on the topic of squirting. This was the extent of the Zune 30's Wi-Fi capabilities, was just sending these files a short distance to another Zune. That was it. And like Apple... Microsoft went with a proprietary cable when it came to connecting to the Zune to charge it or to transfer files to it. The Zune did have one other thing that I thought was pretty cool. It had an FM radio built into it, and I thought that was kind of neat. So like Microsoft was trying to position this as it's a music device, not just for digital files, but also to access radio. But Microsoft didn't really learn a whole lot about what people disliked about the iPod because they made several of the same choices. So one of the big drawbacks of the original Zune was that it would only work with files that had a certain kind of DRM attached to them. DRM stands for Digital Rights Management. And the whole purpose of DRM is to prevent people from being able to pirate stuff, to steal things, or to download stuff without permission. But even DRM that Microsoft itself had designed before the Zune came out wouldn't work on the Zune itself. It wasn't backwards compatible with Microsoft's own DRM uh, history. And that's because Microsoft introduced a new kind of DRM around the same time that they launched the Zune, and the Zune would only be compatible with that version forward. And that meant that if you happen to already have a bunch of music tracks that had the earlier version of Microsoft's DRM on them, 
they would not work with your Zune. So this was very discouraging, right? If you already had a, a sizable digital library and you were just excited about getting a player where you could put the library on the player, it would be very upsetting to find out, oh, you can't because that has the wrong DRM on it. Like in the history of technology, DRM, I think, has long proven to be more of a frustration for legitimate users than it has been a deterrent for piracy. Pirates figure out ways around DRM, which means DRM ultimately just becomes a frustrating experience for people who legitimately purchased the item. So DRM is bad is what I'm saying. <laughs> like it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And then it does do stuff it's not supposed to do. That's the definition of a bad product. Anyway, Microsoft also did something supremely stupid, in my opinion, that it had previously done with its Xbox marketplace, which is instead of having Zune users buy tracks with, you know, real money, you first had to go through this process of purchasing Microsoft points and then using the Microsoft points to get tracks. So you would redeem points for tracks. So there was this middle step that was really frustrating. Part of this was to obfuscate how expensive a track was, right? Because they didn't have a dollar amount associated with it, just a number of points. And you would have to do the math in your head to figure out, okay, well, how many points is equivalent to a dollar, right? But you never could buy them in increments of a dollar. It would always be like $5 or more. So that also meant that if all you wanted to do was buy one track, you actually had to spend five bucks to do it. Not a dollar, but $5 just to get the points. And then you would end up with this bank of Microsoft points just sitting in your account doing nothing. So this Microsoft was not the only company to ever do this. I mean, Disney did this at their parks. They had something called Disney dollars and they were encouraging people to spend their real money to buy theme park currency where you couldn't use that currency anywhere else, but inside those theme parks, knowing that at least some of your money was just going to be wasted on this currency. You wouldn't be able to redeem all of it. So you would actually spend more money at the parks, but you wouldn't get value out of all the money you spent because some of it would just be caught up in this fake currency and you don't have enough of it to do anything useful. Microsoft points were the same way. Ultimately, Microsoft would back off of the system on the Xbox marketplace, but they were still going strong with it when the Zune launched. Okay, we're going to take another quick break. I've got some more things to say about the Zune before we wrap up. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. All right, we're back. Uh, I'm not done slagging off on the Zune yet. Uh, unlike the original iPod, the Zune could not be used as a storage device for other files, right? Like I had mentioned that that was one of the things you could use an iPod for. You could store files on it. You could use it like an external hard drive. You could not do that with the Zune. It also didn't support lossless file formats like WAV files or WAV files, if you prefer, W-A-V. Lossless means that when you create that digital file, you haven't lost any of the information contained within that file. So when you convert music into a digital file, a lossless form factor means everything that was in that recording is there. Blossy means that the process of making that file will actually eliminate some information. Uh, ideally, it's information that wouldn't affect your experience listening to the audio file, uh, but the quality typically takes a hit, whereas lossless, you're getting the highest quality possible based upon whatever recording procedure was used. So reviews said that Zune's playback quality was good despite the lack of support for lossless audio, but it also said like album art, despite being shown on a larger screen than the iPod, didn't look very good. And again, it's because of those resolution issues. So Microsoft pushes out the first Zune in 2006. That's unfortunate wording. I probably should have said something else. Anyway, that year, 2006, Apple sold nearly 39 and a half million iPods. Now, that was impressive because up until 2006, collectively across every single generation of iPod, Apple had sold around 40 million units. And in 2006, they sold nearly as many just in that one year. So in other words, like 
In one year, they doubled the number of iPods they had sold throughout the history of the product. So Apple really was in the dominant position for the digital media player space. So how did the Zoom do? Well, the first couple of weeks it did okay. Uh, initially, sales were slow, but CNN reported at the end of the second week that it had moved into the number two spot for digital media players. That does kind of ignore the fact that the number one spot was light years ahead of it. Like it wasn't even close. <laughs> Being one and two doesn't mean so much if if uh, number one is like 50 miles ahead of you in a in a foot race. Microsoft, in a rush to try and make up for five years of lost time, had launched a bit of a flop. It was received fairly well critically. The critics didn't hate it. They did point out some of the the downsides and the ways that the Zoom failed to live up to the standard of the iPod, as well as some of the things that were really interesting that Microsoft had done. But there were a lot of things to criticize. So Microsoft gets back to work and gets to work on the second generation of the Zune. Uh, this generation would actually ditch that circular D-pad and instead use a touch-sensitive little surface. Uh, it was a quasi-square, and I say quasi because it had rounded corners. It didn't have actual you know, angular corners, but it was a, a surface where you could use uh, touch commands to navigate through the UI, so different from a D-pad. It also had some features that were, I think were pretty neat. Uh, like say that you were listening to your FM radio on your Zoom and let's say a new song comes on and you really dig it. You've never heard it before. You really dig this song. You could actually flag the song on your Zoom. And then when you connected your Zoom to your computer, you could find that song in the Zoom marketplace and then purchase it. It made song discovery really interesting. I thought that legitimately was awesome. You could also download some games to the device. Uh, the user interface and the screen resolution were both improved with the second generation. But this generation of the Zune launched in 2007. 2007 was also the year that Apple launched a pair of devices that ensured it would continue to dominate the mobile space. The first was the iPhone. And ultimately, the iPhone would lead the way to the decline of standalone digital media players in general, including Apple's own media players. The other device was the iPod Touch, which was like an iPhone without the phone part. And when you stack the iPhone uh, or rather the iPod Touch against the second generation Zune, there was just no comparison. Like the iPod Touch was like a sexy Lamborghini and the second generation Zune was like a decent car. And you have to remember Apple still dominated the iTunes space. Like almost all downloads of, of purchased music were through iTunes. So Apple had just this almost a monopoly like hold on the whole ecosystem of digital music at this point. Now we're also chronologically getting to the point where another problem with the original Zune cropped up. I had uh, hinted at it before with the foreshadowing comment. So you remember I said someone at Freescale made a boo-boo when designing the driver for the processor that was found both in the Zune 30 and the Toshiba Gigabeat S. Well, that boo-boo failed to account for the fact that 2008 was a leap year. So at midnight Pacific Standard Time on December 31st, 2008, as the West Coast of the United States prepared to ring in the new year, Zune 30s stopped working. 
they froze. Uh, the Gigabit S devices out there also froze. They were frozen or bricked, at least temporarily. And it took a little bit for folks to figure out what had happened. And it was, again, because of the failure to account for a leap year. Uh, it saw that there were 366 days in the year and it didn't know what to do. And it got it caught in a kind of loop that meant that the device was frozen. Now, the fix was actually pretty simple. All users had to do was keep their frozen Zoom 30s and as well as, you know, the Gigabit S's on and just let the battery drain completely. Once the battery was completely drained, they would just hold off on recharging their device until it was after like noon on January 1st of 2009. Once that that time had passed, they could charge it back up and the device would reset and it would work again. But this was another embarrassing misstep for the original Zune. Microsoft did take one more swing with the third generation of the Zune in 2009. This would be the Zune HD. It was an answer to Apple's iPod Touch. So like the iPod Touch, it had a display that was a touch display. It, it you know got rid of all the little physical buttons and stuff for you to navigate through. Everything was touch oriented. And the problem was the Zune HD came out in 2009. The iPod Touch had come out in 2007. So again, Apple had had a couple of years head start. Plus, there were some other things going on. Now, the Zune HD introduced some cool features like wireless synchronization as well as wireless web access. So you could use it as a wireless uh, uh, you know, mobile device, but you could do that with the iPod Touch as well. And at this time, the writing was starting to show up on the wall for the standalone media playing device, whether it was a Zune or an iPod or anything else, because people were starting to use their smartphones to play media instead of having a, a standalone device dedicated to it. Why would you carry two devices around if one can do the trick? So consumer opinions were starting to shift toward accepting streaming as a music delivery service. So early on, people were not really keen on the idea of streaming. They wanted to be able to own the tracks they loved and not rely on a service to continue to offer the tracks they loved in perpetuity, which, you know, these days, when you look at different streaming platforms, specifically like streaming video platforms, you see cases where a platform loses the rights to a particular type of media, and then you can't access it anymore on that platform. That's a real problem, right? It's a problem that you avoid if you purchase the media and you have it in a format that you can still access no matter what happens to the platform. That's different. And that's what people really were worried about back in when they were you know, buying digital tracks rather than streaming. But eventually streaming went out and it became a more acceptable delivery system. Apple was still miles ahead at this point. So Microsoft decided to call it quits in 2011, having never made a huge dent in the market. So the Zune launched in 2006. Microsoft discontinued it five years later. It, so Zune launched five years too late and only lasted five years. This would not be the only time Microsoft would have to admit defeat in the hardware space, but we'll talk about the Windows phone debacle another day. Today, the Zune is remembered primarily as a joke. In fact, uh, it was used as a joke in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. 
the product itself wasn't necessarily bad. It was just introduced far too late and without the features needed to set it apart from the standard defining iPod. But I think we can all agree the marketing around it was truly terrible. And that is the down and dirty story of the Zune. If you had one, I'd be curious to hear from you. You can always tweet at me uh, on Twitter. It's techstuffhsw. I do need to get another way for people to reach out because I can totally understand folks not wanting to go to Twitter. But yeah, I I'm curious for the Zune owners out there what they thought of the device. Did they like it? What features did they really love? Were there any things that really irritated them about the Zune? Um, I mean, I I'm speaking as someone. My first MP3 player was not an iPod. I had a creative Zen MP3 player and golly, I loved that thing. Uh, it, it was not perfect by a long stretch. It had a lot of issues, but it worked for what I needed it to do. And I didn't have to use iTunes to, <laughs> to access it. So that was a big bonus, but I'm curious what Zune owners thought about their devices. And, uh, it's a shame really that Microsoft wasn't able to compete more in the space. And I say that because when you have competition, it really pushes companies to try and outperform each other. Apple was going hard anyway. They, they had the lead spot and they just kept going hard. Uh, they probably didn't need to go as hard as they did, but we ended up with really good devices as a result of that. But you can't always count on that, right? If a company dominates a market, they don't necessarily need to try to maintain their, their market position. Uh, whereas when there's competition, companies do have to try in order to win over customers. So that's kind of why I'm always bummed when uh, something fails. It might have been a complete ridiculous show from beginning to end because of silly decisions, but I don't want to see failures because I want to see competition so that we get even better stuff on the other end of it. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope you are all well, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.